Welcome back to part two of our podcast, Neuropsychology and Meditation. This is Taylor Kuhn. And this is Peter Nguyen, and we are graduate students in the Department of Clinical and Health Psychology at the University of Florida. And in this segment, we'll be discussing initially some fundamental principles of neuropsychology regarding brain structure, uh, brain connectivity between structures and their function. And then we'll be using these principles to begin to understand some ways that meditation can change the structures of our brain, the connections between structures of our brain, and how these changes can affect uh, our ability to deal with different emotional and, and pain experiences, as well as other cognitive and emotional processes. Neuropsychology research has broadened our understanding of the function of distinct brain areas and their connections. Some distinct parts of the brain are responsible for carrying out specific functions. For example, there are some areas responsible for each individual part of the body. Some of these areas are responsible for our ability to experience touch in our fingers or our lips or the bottom of our feet. Other of these areas are responsible for our ability to move our fingers, lips, and feet. Some of the more complex actions and cognitions that we experience as humans are also carried out by isolated brain regions. The hippocampus is responsible for our ability to store and retrieve autobiographical memories. When it comes to emotion, the amygdala is responsible for our emotional perception of things in our environment. When it comes to language, different parts of our ability to speak are achieved by different parts of the brain. An area called Wernicke's area is responsible for our ability to comprehend spoken language, while Broca's area is responsible for our ability to produce spoken language. While specific brain regions are important for carrying out specific brain functions, the connections between brain regions are also very important. These connections carry information between brain regions. As an example, the connection between Broca and Wernicke's area, called the arcuate fasciculus, is responsible for our ability to repeat things we hear. In order to repeat verbal information, we must first comprehend that information and then send the comprehended information to that part of our brain which allows us to produce speech. If the connection between the comprehension center and the production center is disconnected, we are still able to comprehend and produce speech to a certain degree, but we lose the ability to repeat language. In a similar way, some connections allow one brain region to modulate activity in another brain region. This modulation can be thought of as one brain area turning up or down the volume of another area. If your job is to push button A or button B based on whether or not you hear music on the radio, and I can turn the radio volume up or down, then I can modulate your ability to push button A or button B. In a similar way, modulation in the brain allows one region to affect the behavior of other regions, and even systems of connected regions. The prefrontal cortex modulates activity in the amygdala. Imagine this scenario. You are walking through a parking lot at night and you hear a loud In a normal brain, activity in the amygdala 
would respond to this loud noise telling you that there might be something threatening in your environment. You look around and you see that one car backed into another and that there is no threat to you yourself, so you don't need to worry or to continue paying attention to the cars behind you. In order to begin relaxing, your prefrontal cortex starts turning the volume down on the amygdala so that it is no longer telling you to feel threatened. Since activity in the amygdala is directly related to the autonomic nervous system, the fight or flight system which increases your heart rate, for example, your body is able to begin calming down as the volume is turned down in this part of your brain. Now imagine this, the same scenario as before, big Only this time, your prefrontal cortex does not turn the volume down. You continue to feel threatened. Your heart continues to race, and you drive all the way home feeling scared and anxious. That night, you cannot sleep because you are still wired and on edge. What you might not yet know is that the amygdala itself can turn the volume up or down on your hippocampus, the part of your brain responsible for vivid autobiographical memories. When activity in the amygdala is high, the vividness of the memories you create are enhanced by heightened emotional arousal. This means that the memories are easier to retrieve and re-experience, and when you do, the re-experiencing feels that much more real. So, not only are you awake, heart racing, fearful, but you, your memory keeps flashing back to the parking lot and how you felt when you heard the big bang. Notice, for example, that just a second ago, you may have even prepared yourself to hear the actual sound of the car crash rather than the word bang. The same brain system we are discussing is responsible for your ability to remember the previous loud noises you heard in my talk, feel something emotionally and maybe even physically related to that noise, and prepare yourself to re-experience it. This is exactly what we're talking about. And this theory is one of the theories that explains part of what happens in the brains of people who develop hypervigilant post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. Their fight or flight response is amped up by one or more threatening, dangerous, or painful experiences, and their brain does not know how to turn that volume down. This leads patients with PTSD to continue feeling high levels of fear and anxiety in a multitude of environments. The heightened emotional enhancement of memory leads to flashbacks. A separate form of PTSD, in which patients dissociate from their trauma and from stimuli which remind them of their trauma, is referred to as dissociative PTSD. It is believed that this form of PTSD is caused by an overmodulation of the amygdala by the prefrontal cortex. In this case, the idea is that during the traumatic event and after, the prefrontal cortex mutes the volume of the amygdala such that patients have little to no fight-or-flight response. Because of the connection between this system and memory, some patients with associative PTSD have no memory of the traumatic event. This does not lessen the degree of difficulty or impairment following the trauma. It does, however, provide a model for what happens when activity in one part of the brain is not corrected by, correctly modulated by another brain area. Numerous forms of treatment are available for patients with PTSD, several of which seek to directly or indirectly change the prefrontal cortex's ability to modulate, that is, turn up or down the volume in the amygdala. Meditation itself is capable of teaching people to turn the volume down on their amygdala, and as a result, lessen their reactions to threat and to stress. Mindfulness meditation has been shown to promote emotional stability. To demonstrate this, 
One study took beginning meditators, people with no meditation experience, who were briefly taught mindful meditation and practiced for between four and six weeks, and showed them pictures which are known to elicit strong emotional reactions. Compared to normal people, these beginning meditators had a less intense subjective experience when viewing these pictures. Functional MRI, a tool used by neuropsychologists we've already discussed, revealed that this change in emotional reaction was due to a deactivation of the amygdala. This deactivation was later shown and has been verified by several other studies to be caused by enhanced activation of the prefrontal cortex. What this means is that even one to two months of meditation can change the way different parts of our brain interact. In this case, meditation was able to change the way the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala interact such that beginning meditators were more emotionally even, cool, even keel. The mechanism that is allowing beginning meditators more emotional stability involves the same network that is affected in PTSD. So, it is possible that meditation could help patients with PTSD by allowing the prefrontal cortex to appropriately turn up or down the volume of the amygdala. This could help patients gain more control over their symptoms and even over their lives. So, that's what happens for beginning meditators. What about people who have been meditating for years, people with thousands and thousands of hours of meditation practice? It turns out that these people also demonstrate enhanced abilities to regulate their emotions. However, the neural mechanism that allows them to stay calm when other, others might experience panic or anxiety is different than the mechanism we just talked about in beginning meditators. Mindful meditation, when practiced, actually deactivates areas of the brain involved in evaluating the emotional significance of people, places, and things. So rather than seeing an image that is intended to be frightening and reacting to it negatively or fearfully, expert meditators show little to no emotional reaction. The part of their brain that would typically register that snake or gun or masked man as dangerous is deactivated, so their subjective and physical response to threat is minimal. Instead of reacting with strong emotion, these people are able to react calmly and thoughtfully in a wider range of situations. Interestingly, not only are the function of these areas of the brain changed in a way that helps people manage their emotions better, the physical connections between these reasons are also changed by meditation. Again, in expert meditators, research has found changes in the strength of connection between regions thought to determine the emotional significance of objects. In beginning meditators, and in people who learn mindful reappraisal, a process involving reframing how you think about things or events so that you view them in a more positive or healthy way, these people show a strengthening of the connections between the prefrontal cortex and amygdala. The stronger this connection, uh, the easier it is for the frontal cortex to change the volume. Because cognitive reframing has also been shown to have similar effects on the activity and connectivity of the frontal cortex and the amygdala, it is unclear what aspect of meditation is responsible for these changes. Mindful practices teach participants to experience events, thoughts, and feelings without judging them, a method similar to cognitive reframing. Cognitive reframing may be the aspect of mindful meditation that is responsible for the majority of these brain changes. Or it may be that other aspects of meditation, including prolonged physical relaxation, 
guided breathing and imagery, and a shift in personal perspective from egocentric to allocentric may also be involved in these neural changes. In order to see which aspect of mindful meditation plays the crucial role in affecting changes in the brain, a study was conducted by collaborators at Boston University, Emory University, and University of Arizona Tucson. This group took healthy adults with no prior training in meditation and taught them either mindful attentive training or cognitive-based compassion training. Mindful attentive training involves sitting comfortably and physically relaxing in order to in order to set the body and breathing in their, quote, natural state. Then, participants are directed to become mindful of their breathing, to focus and maintain their attention on their breath, and to be not distracted by their thoughts. People will, of course, continue to think during these exercises. So, participants are reminded to just let thoughts happen and then return attention to their breathing. Finally, these participants are trained to become aware of their awareness, which is to say they are guided to pay attention to their thoughts and to their feelings and to do nothing about them. Instead, the goal is simply to let thoughts happen without trying to stop them, change them, or continue them. Now, what about the other training group? Well, cognitive-based compassion training is a technique based on the compassion training taught by Tibetan Buddhist monks. This training involves a, simple, a similar attention to thoughts without judgment. It also teaches participants to experience compassion towards themselves by accepting their thoughts and feelings. This idea is then expanded to include appreciating others as well as feeling affection and empathy towards others. In this study, people were randomly selected to one of these groups and then trained on either mindful attentive training or cognitive-based compassion training for two hours each week. There was also a third group, a control group, where people spent two hours each week talking about health issues such as exercise, diabetes, and did nothing more. The mindfulness group was also given a homework assignment to practice meditation 20 to 30 minutes every day. Before training began, and at the end of eight weeks of training, participants were shown emotionally evocative pictures while in an fMRI scanner. The results showed that the mindful attentive group experienced less subjective response to evocative pictures, meaning they were less frightened or threatened or disgusted by the pictures. Not only that, but the mindful group showed a longitudinal change in amygdala activity. Compared to before they began meditation training, the eight-week mindful meditators showed less activity in their amygdala in response to emotionally arousing images. This result was not found in the cognitive-based compassion group or in the discussion control group. The authors of this paper argued that this study showed that even short-term meditation practice changes people's ability to regulate their emotions, and that these effects occur even when those people are not meditating. And they showed that this skill is based on measurable, observable changes in the brain and the same structures we've already been discussing. Finally, by comparing the meditation group to a group who learned to reframe how they think and feel about themselves and others, this study showed that reframing is not the main factor that makes meditation so powerful. That said, what allows meditation to have these effects on brain and behavior is still a mystery requiring further investigation. So, how are the effects of meditation present even when people aren't meditating? Well. One might argue that changes in activation 
and connectivity that occur during meditation can happen after people stop meditating and return to their daily routines. Kind of like a bodybuilder strengthening her muscles and then staying strong even when she's not at the gym. Well, studies have looked at this. The studies we've already discussed were all conducted while participants were sitting normally in a scanner looking at pictures. They weren't in the process of meditating. So, this argument seems to hold true. Additionally, there is a third possibility, a third process that may be going on. Along with changes in activity within and connectivity between brain regions, studies have shown that meditation can lead to changes in the actual structure of brain regions. By comparing the volume of different structures in the brains of people who practice mindful meditation and people who have never meditated, studies have shown that areas of the brain activated during meditation actually get bigger. That is, these areas have higher volumes of gray matter. The right anterior insula is a part of the brain thought to help people be aware of the feelings and sensations going on in their body. This area was larger in meditators than in non-meditators. Other areas enhanced in volume by meditation include the inferior temporal gyrus and the hippocampus, areas known to be activated during meditation. In fact, the amount of gray matter volume increase in the inferior temporal gyrus got higher in direct proportion to the amount of time spent meditating. This suggests a causative, perhaps exercise-like role of meditation. Now, it is important to mention that meditation can help people learn to manage more than emotion and thoughts. Meditation can also help people manage physical pain. Again, the concept is that mindful meditation encourages people to interact with their sensory experience without making judgments about those experiences. To be concrete, we all feel sad or mad or scared at times. A mindful approach would suggest that you avoid labeling sad, angry, or scared feelings as bad or negative feelings. You also wouldn't label them as good feelings. The idea is not to label them at all, except as sad, or angry, or scared, or happy, or loving, etc. Similarly, a mindful approach to pain suggests that you label the pain only as an experience, rather than a negative experience which needs to be escaped or necessarily fixed. Now I know that might sound strange. Why is he saying you shouldn't try to fix pain? Now in cases where you can fix pain, an obvious example being touching a hot stove, you absolutely should. Take your hand off the stove. But it isn't always that easy, and for millions of people who suffer from chronic pain, it just isn't possible. For these people, pain is a semi if not fully constant part of their life. For these people who cannot change whether or not they feel pain, Changing how they experience pain is a worthwhile option. After training people to meditate over four days, one study scanned participants in an fMRI while pain was induced, for example by pressing a warm plate to the palm of the person's hand. While meditating in the scanner, participants rated the unpleasantness of pain 57% less and the intensity of that pain 40% lower than when they weren't meditating. So meditation allowed these people to experience less intense, less uncomfortable pain. But what about their brains? Well, meditation reduced activation in the somatosensory cortex, the area of the brain that allows you to experience the sensations of touch, heat, itch, and pain. The reduction of pain ratings were related to decreased activation in an area of the frontal cortex associated with reframing the evaluation of sensory experience. 
similar to cognitive reframing. Activity in the insula was, was reduced, an area known to be responsible for emotional responses. Lastly, the thalamus, the part of the brain which controls connections between incoming sensory information and higher order cognitive areas of the brain, was found to deactivate during meditation. What this suggests is that the volume was turned down on incoming pain sensation as it reached areas involved in thinking and, and feeling. If this is what can happen after four days of meditating, what can a lifetime of meditation practice achieve? One study examined a lifelong yoga master who claimed that he doesn't feel pain when meditating. Using magnetoencephalography, or MEG, a technique which measures the activity of the cortex of the brain through the skull, it was found that the primary and secondary somatosensory areas associated with pain sensation were minimally active at rest and absent when the yoga master was meditating. Using fMRI, results were similar to those we just discussed in beginning meditators. Activity in the frontal cortex, the insula, and the thalamus was significantly lower during meditation than during rest. These reductions in activation were again thought to be related to the cognitive and affective reappraisal of pain and to a blunting or even muting of the incoming pain information before it reaches conscious awareness. So far we have seen that mindful meditation can help people more effectively regulate their emotions, temper their physical reaction to uncomfortable thoughts and emotions, and even reduce the intensity and discomfort of pain. For these reasons and others, mindfulness has found its way into psychotherapy and other health practices. Mindfulness-based acceptance and commitment therapy is a form of evidence-based psychotherapy commonly practiced in the U.S. and other countries. Mindful therapy techniques and meditation itself are becoming more popular. And mindful meditation as well as acceptance and commitment therapy have been shown to effectively treat patients with mood, anxiety, and other psychological disorders. To recap, neuropsychology has begun to demonstrate the relationship between meditation and psycho psychological, physiological, and neurological changes. With the help of neuroimaging tools, neuropsychologists have shown that meditation causes observable and lasting changes in the brain. In particular, meditation can affect changes in the size and activity of brain regions. It can also modulate the connectivity between brain regions. Using behavioral tests, Neuropsychologists are beginning to examine the impact of meditation on cognitive skills such as attention, intention, memory, and visual-spatial skills. Similar behavioral tools have also been used to evaluate and validate mindfulness and meditation as useful and cost-effective clinical tools. For instance, much research has shown that mindfulness-based stress reduction has dramatic effects on mood, symptoms of stress, and overall quality of life in cancer patients. The Eastern tradition of meditation has become popular amongst Westerners only in the modern time period. It has become popular amongst Western health care providers even more recently. As such, its effect on the brain and the body and its utility as a clinical tool are still under much investigation. The results thus far are promising and absolutely exciting. Thank you for listening to part two of Neuropsychology and Meditation podcast. 
we've just reviewed some fundamental principles of neuropsychology regarding the structure and connectivity of the brain and we've also discussed how meditation can affect the uh, structure and connectivity within the brain and how that can help us improve emotional regulation and help us better manage chronic pain. Uh, this concludes our two-part podcast on the neuropsychology of meditation. Thank you for listening. And uh, once again, this was very much a brief overview uh, on some of the topics of neuropsychology and meditation in the brain. And I encourage you to uh, look into some of the research a little bit more deeply if you're interested, uh, as we were really only able to provide you a brief glimpse into some of the current literature in this field. And once again, this is Peter Nguyen and Taylor Kuhn.